Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. All right. Man, appreciate you guys. I do hope you'll check out groups. We're going to talk a little bit later in the sermon about importance of friendships. And I think groups is uh, significant for us and significant for us in, in terms of our ability to care well for you and our ability to, uh, to help you grow as a disciple of Jesus. And so I hope that you will consider and prayerfully consider how it is you need to get plugged in there as I get adjusted here. All right, I think we're ready to go. Uh, we better pray. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for the life which you have given. I thank you for uh, the friends that we make here. I thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have given us a word to guide our steps and to give us wisdom and how to navigate the, the waters in which we live and swim in, in, the, in our day. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you give us conviction, that you would give us courageous love, even now, Father, for your sake, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in a series in the book of, uh, the first, first part of the book of Daniel, a series called Engage. And one of the things I love about the Bible is that it speaks across thousands of years with clarity and with conviction in ways that ring deep and true to us even now. And as we dive in today, I want to tell you why we're looking at the book of Daniel. And as you're turning there to Daniel chapter 1, Let me tell you why we're looking at the book of Daniel. Daniel is a crucial book in your Bible because it tells about a particular time in the nation of Israel and when when they were uh, kind of left out of their country and forced to live amongst the people that did not believe as they did. And because it speaks to that particular moment in the history of Israel, it also speaks to us about the particular moment in which we find ourselves. Because their moment mirrors our moment in, a lot, in, in many ways. In fact, they lived in a, in a time when the world did not operate according to the, the joys and the, the values that were described in the scriptures. And we find ourselves in a pluralistic time where there's a diversity of opinions, a diversity of beliefs, a diversity of morals, a diversity of viewpoints. And surely this week of all weeks, that's pretty obvious to us, right? If you know what happened in New York City this week, if you know uh, what happened in Washington, D.C. this week, it's pretty obvious that there's some division and some divided viewpoints going on in our world that not everyone is in agreement on how we are to view things and what it is we are to stand on and what it is we are to believe. And so uh, one of the things we see is that our world has really gone through this kind of seismic shift over the last hundred years. And to be honest, the dust hasn't fully settled on that. But what I am sure of is that apart from a surprising act of God, we are not gonna go back to a season of Christendom the way the world has operated for the last thousand years. But let's be honest, comfort has not always been a true blessing to the church in the West. In fact, I think oftentimes we've become so self-confident and self-dependent in our comfort in the West that it actually led us astray. In fact, you know what the most, uh, the, the country with the most, uh, most number of Christians in the world is today? It's probably China a place where Christians are under incredible persecution. And yet 
Christ is flourishing there, even as Christ seems to be diminishing oftentimes in the West. So for his part, as we look at Daniel, Daniel was living in a time and a place where he wasn't particularly happy about being there. He didn't necessarily want to be where he was. He, in fact, would have preferred to have gone back home to a place where people thought like he did, believed like he did, sang like he did, ate like he did. And yet God has him in a place that's different than that. And he's going to have to learn how to engage in a new world. He's gonna have to learn how to engage his world with conviction and with courageous love in the midst of a diversity and a pluralistic society of people that don't always see things his way. Friends, we have to learn to do the same thing. And so if you would turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter one, and as we do that, let me just give you some of the background. The book starts with Daniel as a, as a young man. He's in his youth, but it's gonna end with him as an old man returning home. In fact, what we know is that Daniel is gonna serve over 70 years away from home in exile. He's gonna serve through three different kings, through two different regimes. They're, they're gonna Babylonian rule that's gonna to shift to Persian rule. And in the midst of that transition, uh, he's gonna live as an exile in, this, in two different cultures. And yet he's gonna remain God-centered and actively engaged in it all. Daniel is here as an example for us of how to live well in a world that does not see life as we do. In fact, we're gonna see how well Daniel lives over the next few chapters. Did you know that King Nebuchadnezzar is likely in glory with God today because of Daniel's presence in Babylon and the work of God through Daniel and his friends made an eternal difference in that man's life and in the lives of others in that place. And friends, God wants to use us in a similar fashion. I'm convinced of that. So let's dig into this book. We're gonna start off with the first, we're gonna start off in verse three of Daniel chapter one. So then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food and, <clears throat> excuse me, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. These are Daniel and his friends and how it was they were to live. And so what I wanna to do today is I want us to look at five distinctives of a God-centered engagement. If we're to live an engaged life in a world that oftentimes disagrees with us, it's gonna be a God-centered sort of engagement that we're called to, that the Bible calls us to. And Daniel becomes a model of that for us. Whenever the, the scriptures show us a model like this, Daniel's one of the few guys in the scriptures that we don't really see any of his flaws. We don't see his warts, we don't see his scars, we don't see some of the, the foibles and the broken places in his life. He's actually kind of exalted as this guy that really we, we don't see any of his weaknesses. And it's not because he didn't have them, it's not because he's perfect. There's been one perfect dude on the planet, his name was Jesus, he was not Daniel. But sometimes the Bible, in order to sort of elevate someone and say, this is how you live in the world, 
will give us a model of someone and not show us their sinful side because they're lifting him up and just saying, here's how you ought to live. Daniel is one of those guys, like Joseph in the Old Testament, that becomes an example for us. And so we're gonna, we're gonna look at five distinctives of God-centered engagement. The first thing we see in Daniel's life is Daniel is mature. Daniel is mature in the way he, he interacts. Now think about this. Daniel is, he's living in a foreign land against his will. And an enemy army came into his hometown, took him and his family hostage, deported them to a foreign place. But not just that, they raised the city. They stole the, the valuable things of that culture and they exported them and then took them back home against the will of the Israelites. And so think about the emotion of that. Think about what it would have felt like to have someone come into your house and march you out of home. You know, there's, there's actually evidence in the scriptures that, uh, the, that the, the Babylonians uh, killed Israelite babies because they didn't want to ship them home, that they actually tormented and mocked them. And as they were leaving, asked them to sing the songs of Israel, the happy songs. He said, hey, sing us a happy song as we march you out of Israel and take you to Babylon where you do not want to be. Think about how difficult that would be to sing the happy songs of your hometown as you left home for what you thought was probably the rest of your life. And they mock you and insult you and ask you to sing for them. This is the backstory of what Daniel was facing. And yet Daniel also knows that it was God who commanded them that when they arrived in Babylon, he says, set up roots there, make a new life there, seek the welfare of the city there, be a blessing there, multiply and fill that city and do good there. So the juxtaposition of those two ideas is gonna take some maturity to navigate. It would have been difficult, I think, for Daniel to live in such a way that, that would have been a blessing to that city if he had been immature. I don't think he would have succeeded. And I definitely don't think he could have made a difference in that place. Friends, there are, there are times when your faith must guide your feelings. When, when your faith must redirect the way in which you live, even though your feelings may disagree with you. It doesn't mean that your feelings are unimportant. In fact, anger and sadness are key indicators of what's going on inside here that we need to realize and acknowledge because they reveal something about our souls to us. And it's important for us to be honest about those. They're significant markers that need to be acknowledged. And yet, we don't need to be slaves to them. Our feelings are not things out there that victimize us. Our feelings are a part of us. And so we need to invite God to help direct us in the midst of difficult places. Maturity oftentimes moves through the hardships of life in order to deepen, in order to reach the deepest places of our, of our hearts. Oftentimes God uses suffering and difficulty and hardship to dig deeper into our souls and to reform and, and teach us to trust him even in those, those deep places. Uh, Peter Cesaro says, we can't be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. And the longer I live in the world, I realize how important this is. That, that we can't grow up and be built up and strong spiritually, but be immature emotionally. That God somehow reshapes all of us. And so when the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, speak to our lives, it reshapes the way in which we operate and the way in which we interact with the world around us. When we walk with God, he bolsters and shapes even our emotions. So here's some ways that I think emotional immaturity might hinder engagement, why it's important for us to walk in maturity. First, the inability to deal with disappointment. 
Harboring of resentment, harboring resentment and bitterness would block our ability to engage for good the city in which we find ourselves. Unwillingness to move through hurt and pain, but to, to coddle it and make it kind of our, our, our pet rather than to move through it. Freaking out when things don't go as you think they should. Have any of you ever feel that way? Like things don't go, your day doesn't go the way you want it to and it completely just unravels you. And maybe you need the Lord to speak into those places. Refusal to see the big picture and adjust your life accordingly. These are all ways in which if we don't learn how to bring those under the Lordship of Christ, they're going to limit our ability to engage the world around us. Think about Daniel's circumstances. I'm sure that as he walked into the king's palace, a king who was his enemy, a king who, who, who had brought him under his rule and his reign against his will, I'm sure this was some uncomfortable places for him to operate. But he also knew that, the, that God was sovereign. And God said, I sent you into that land. That this is a part of my doing and a part of my plan and a part of what I'm doing. And here's what I realized in, in seeing this. Daniel needed to know that the hand of God in this was stronger than the hand of Nebuchadnezzar in this. Daniel needed to know that this was not, that if he was going to not just endure this place, but to engage this place, he needed to know that God was in charge, that God was still at work. And so God put him in this place to make an impact, but in order to do so, we had to realize he couldn't afford to get stuck emotionally. Now think about the pressure that he was gonna walk into. When I read the, the list of kind of the kinds of people that they were gathering around the kingdom, um, think about the pressure of living amongst the royal family, unblemished youths, people of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, learning, and knowledge, there's not much pressure, is there? I mean, that's a tough place to step into. These are well-rounded Renaissance men. This is like an Ivy League weekend where you have a chess tournament, football tryouts, fraternity rush, and a creative writing competition all over at the same time. Like, that seems like the kind of place that it was. This was Master Class 101 in Babylon University where they were educating these people. And you notice that the, the focus... I think uh, this would be even more difficult because if you didn't measure up, you could end up in prison or dead. So it wasn't just whether you got the best job, like there was actual real life consequences at stake here that were going on. Notice in an effort to basically take all these people that they had conquered, Babylon tried to remove all the national identities and the spiritual heritages of all these people in order to make them look like them, think like them, eat like them, believe like them, act like them. So they're going to re-educate them according to the Babylonian culture and customs. We're gonna teach you our literature. We're gonna teach you our songs. We're gonna give you the best of our foods. We're gonna make you want to be just like us. And that's the world that Daniel finds himself in. And he's gonna need some maturity in order to know how to navigate that kind of world. You notice they even changed their names from their God-given names based on their heritage to pagan names based on Babylonian culture. So there's an identity thing that's happening here where he just says, we're gonna take you and we're gonna try to make you someone new that's lost touch with who you were born to be. So, but what we're gonna see is Daniel stays grounded in it all. Let's keep going. Let's look at verse eight. We're gonna see what Daniel, how Daniel responds. It says, but Daniel. When you see a, a, a conjunction there, but, it's saying there's a contrast here. This is what they intended, but Daniel is gonna do something different. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hassaniah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the other youths who eat at the king's table be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were of better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So Daniel, the, first, or the second distinctive, I think, that we see here of Daniel's life, the first was that he was, Daniel was mature. The second is that Daniel is resolved. Daniel's resolved in his heart who he wants to be. This, this term resolved is an interesting term. It actually combines two kind of separate ideas. First is to fix authoritatively or, or, or uh, conclusively. It's to kind of lay down the law in an area of your life. The second idea is the idea of the heart or the inner man. So it's fixing or setting something conclusively according to your heart in the inner man. It denotes, uh, the idea is to kind of denotes the heart anatomically, but the mind psychologically. It is this kind of holistic commitment. And this really is, is what the idea we talk about or we think about when we talk about conviction. Conviction is a mental commitment that flows out of a heart affection. It somehow unites the mind and it unites the heart. It's a mental conviction that flows out of our heart's affection. And it's Daniel is resolved in this. I think it's worth noting there's other exiles along with Daniel who do not share his same conviction. There's others that are not resolved. In fact, Daniel and his friends weren't the only Israelites in exile amongst the, there amongst the king's palace, which means that there were friends of theirs who didn't see things as they did and didn't have the same sense of the conviction, which I think speaks a warning to us. And your friends and others around you, whenever you live by conviction, may think, ah, you're kind of going overboard. And is it, is it really that big of a deal? What difference is it really gonna make? Maybe we should just enjoy this. Or maybe they'll even say, you know, I think my way is really God, according to God's will. Not all those around you are gonna see things and, and experience the same conviction that you do from the Lord. But Daniel and his friends resolved, you notice what it is they resolved to do, what they were convicted about. They resolved not to be defiled. To be defiled is to be tainted, to be polluted, to experience some kind of a stain or, or some kind of a watering down of the goodness in your life. And this is what it says uh, that, that they were resolved to do, which is they wanted to remain singularly committed in a relationship to the Lord. Now, I think it's interesting here that the Bible you notice the things that it calls them to do. The Bible, you notice that it never says that we can't learn other languages. The Bible says that we should read the scriptures, but doesn't say we, we're not allowed to read other books. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that we can't sing other songs that don't show up in the book of Psalms. It doesn't say that, that, that we can't engage with the culture around us, that we can't work and produce good things. It never commands anything related to those things. And yet um, Daniel here is, is, is invested in, in all those ways. And yet there's a certain place where he says, I'm gonna draw a line here. And he, he fixes in his heart a desire to draw a line. I think we can bend, but there are some places where we don't wanna go. 
We can flex and we can embrace much of that around us, but there are places where we need to kind of draw a line in the sand and say, I, I don't feel like I should cross that line because my heart would be, might be pulled away from a relationship with my Lord. We're to be in Babylon, but not of Babylon, so to speak. You notice that Daniel really, when he says, I don't want to be defiled, he's saying, I want to maintain my distinctiveness as a child of God is one who belongs to him. Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The New Testament says, is a commandment that comes to us, that we're not to be conformed, but we're to be transformed by, by God and by his direction. Why? It says, so that you may discern what the will of God is, knowing what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what Daniel was living out. He's a model for that of us, or model to us of that kind of a life. This is, I, I wanna know what God's will is so that I can honor him in all that I do. Jesus said, I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world as he prayed to his father. He said, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus didn't, exi- didn't pull us out. He didn't cause us to exit the world. He says, leave them there, but keep them from evil in the midst of the world in which they live. This is the life that we're called to, that we're called to, to live as well. Now, what's the specific situation Daniel was facing? This is kind of an interesting one. You notice what it is he doesn't want to defile himself with. He says he doesn't want to eat the meat that the, uh, that the king ate. And he doesn't want to drink the wine that the king gave. So first of all, let me say, God does not command us all to be vegan. That's very important to me personally. As someone who loves to barbecue, loves to smoke meat, I want to be really clear about this. You're not commanded the scriptures to be a vegetarian. Some of you may choose to. That's perfectly okay. Um, but that's really not what this is about. Nowhere does scripture command that they couldn't eat meat. In fact, there was clear guidelines given for how they were to, uh, to, to cook the meat and prepare the meat in kosher sorts of ways in the Old Testament. Also, the scriptures do not command that you can't drink wine, but it does command you not to be drunk. And so there's, there, there's, there's not a guideline that's a, a simple rule that's given here. And so a lot of people discuss, well, what was it Daniel was really upset about? What was, what was really going on here in this passage? And it could be that some of the meats that were being prepared weren't being prepared according to, to kosher rules, but it doesn't seem to be just that because wine wouldn't have applied in that scenario. Uh, it may have been, some people think that, uh, that, that Daniel refused because the meat was offered to idols and had some, was somehow connected to false worship in the temples of Babylon. But that seems, uh, that seems a little more possible. But, but honestly, I think that's also unlikely because uh, the vegetables and, and, and breads and other things would have off, oftentimes been offered within the temples as well. And so potentially that's not what this is about. In fact, what I think this is, I think this is a lot more subtle than, than, than breaking simply an old test, a clear Old Testament law. I don't think that is really what we're seeing here. I think Daniel didn't refuse to eat it simply because it broke a rule. I think this took something more thoughtful and more reflective than even that. I think he was afraid that in the comfort of the king's palace and all the things there, that his heart might be wooed away from the Lord that he would not belong to God as much as he would belong to Babylon, that he would not just learn about the ways of Babylon, but he would begin to embrace the ways of Babylon, that that he would become so comfortable there that he no longer reserved himself for the worship of his God. And I think that's some of what we see is that in a foreign land where he was being treated like a king, that it would become so comfortable. This was a way for him to say, I'm gonna disrupt the comfort of my life in order to preserve the heart that my heart for the Lord. 
His singular devotion to the Lord was in danger if he uncritically waded into the waters of this other world and those around him. I think it's important for us to realize that I think for Daniel, he realized that the times called for a greater commitment and a deeper faith in God, not less. So he sacrificed a comfort in order to preserve his spiritual health. It takes some wisdom to do that. Friends, let me ask you a question. Are you drifting along in the cultural waters of our world so comfortably that you just go with the flow all the time? Is there anything distinctive about your faith in your life? Is there anything in your life that disrupts the status quo of our city that looks any different than those around us? Is there anything, any way in which you uniquely are are sacrificial or generous in a way that looks like Jesus, in a way that you're so servant-hearted that, that there's something unique that stands out there, that uh, something about your purity and your commitment to the goodness uh, to, to, to live well in our world that makes you shine as a light in the darkness. I think that's part of what we see in Daniel. There comes a point in our lives where we have to make our faith our own because we believe that God's way is best and that God's way is wise and we're going to walk in it. And I think, you know, I think of stories of this. Uh, a friend of mine, I know that uh, was, was in the banking industry and was offered a promotion. And in his promotion was offered to really be the president of the bank which, which he had worked. And it was a great honor and something which, to be frank, he had actually worked towards his, kind of all his days. But whenever he really prayed about that at, in the moment, he just felt like, man, I think if I did that, I would lose my ministry to my church and I would lose my time with my family And so even though they told him, look, you only get offered this job once. He said, you know, I don't think that's for me this time. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying you should turn down promotions. No, God may actually lead you to take a promotion. But I'm saying you're gonna need wisdom and you're gonna need to trust the Lord and you're gonna need to pray and ask him to transform you so that you can discern the will of God in different scenarios to know how to walk wisely in your world so that you can maintain a relationship with the Lord that that isn't simply something swayed by the cultural waters in which we live. We can't uncritically live just wandering through life without prayerfully asking God for guidance and direction about the things which we're called to do. Nan and I, when we first got married, one of the things we decided to do is we took our TV and we put it in the closet for the first, I don't know, how long was it? Five, six years? Um, just, and it wasn't because TV was bad. We watch TV now. But when we first started our marriage, one of the convictions we had was we just, we didn't want to become an old couple that had nothing to talk about and sat around eating TV dinners in front of uh, the latest sitcom and had no relationship. And so we just said, why don't we just put this away for a season so that we can really focus on one another and on the things that God has called us to do as we're studying in, in seminary and preparing for ministry. That isn't something you necessarily have to do. And in this season, I don't feel convicted to do that at all. But you see how sometimes God will guide us to value certain things in order that we can really elevate that which is most important to us because we wanna live in ways that honor the Lord and walk closely with him. So I love this about Daniel and I love this in what we're seeing. And I'm not saying that all of those things are for you. I'm just saying, and there may be times in your life where you need to stop and just pray and ask God for direction to guide you and help you know how to live so that we don't just get, get swallowed up in the, cultural drifts that are around us. You have to be resolved. So let's look at the third distinctive that I think shows up here. 
Third, Daniel is a companion. You notice it says, let us, test us, look at our appearance. Daniel, he's got some friends and some companions at the table with him. He's not doing this on his own. He's got some relationships, some buddies that are kind of are watching his back and holding him accountable and walking with him. And few joys are as great as locking arms with some buds and saying, man, let's go figure out how to live for the mission of God together. There's something about that that's incredibly life-giving to us. And do you have friends like that? You need two to three friends that you can lock arms with and say, man, let's figure out how to walk with the Lord together in this thing. We were in small group training last week and Caleb threw out this question. He says, what was the greatest time of community in your life? And David Cole answered, I remember him saying, man, there was a group of guys when I was in college that we just came together and we didn't have it all figured out, but we just trusted each other and trusted God and began to just ask the Lord, man, what does it look, or try to figure out together, what does it look like for us to kind of grow up as men together, learning to walk with, with Jesus? And my experience was, was similar to that. You've probably heard me talk about my Fandango guys and this group of guys that on the Brazos River in Waco, Texas at 11 p.m. on Wednesday nights, we would go sit down on the dock of the river and just, and we were all messed up in different ways and we had some things in common. We had a lot of stuff that wasn't very similar amongst us, but we just kind of figured out how to, or begin to ask the question, what does it look like for us to walk with God in this next season of life? And we all need friends like that around us. You need a band of brothers to circle around you as well. And so as we think about the, the next kind of distinctive of God-centered engagement, I think uh, the, the third one or the fourth one there is Daniel was kind. Now, the first three really looked at internally kind of what was going on in Daniel. The, the last two really looked more externally of Daniel's interaction with his world. And verse eight, you notice Daniel, and we're gonna see that Daniel was kind in this section. Daniel starts off, you notice he asked permission to do this. He doesn't, he isn't demanding that when he comes to the, the chief that, that is over him and when he comes to the assistant of the chief, he asks and requests things for them. He says, let us. He, he recognizes that they're in charge. He says, according to what you see, meaning you hold all the cards here. What's he doing? Well, he's saying, please. He's being kind. He's being polite. He's not being presumptuous or demanding. And what was the end result? It says, so the man listened to them in this matter. That somehow his kindness to, in the way he approached those that, he was re, that, that, that maybe didn't see things his way opened a door for him. So politeness and respect don't matter much unless you actually want them to listen to you. And what we see here is that Daniel was kind. If you're gonna engage a broken world, we've gotta be generous and gracious towards others. But I love that, that, that the scriptures here show us the tension between Daniel and this chief Daniel says, hey, how about we not eat the meat? And he goes, how about I lose my head by the kids? The king sees that you don't measure up. And he goes, I don't like this idea much because there's some tension there. He's afraid. And the chief's afraid that, Daniel, if I give you what you want, it may be my head on a platter. And so I'm gonna be held accountable to you. And so there's this interaction that takes place there. And Daniel just says, man, would you just let us, maybe just try it for 10 days. Just give us a shot. And he's respectful to the man that he's interacting with. Proverbs says a man's gift makes way for him and brings him before the great. Meaning when you're kind and generous towards others, it actually creates an opening for you to have a relationship with them and, and brings you before those that, are, that, that you're engaging. 
You know, because <clears throat> he didn't act entitled, he didn't refuse to play by the rules. He just, he didn't like throw, throw himself down on the, on the ground in a fit like a little kid and go, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not eating that meat. He comes and he says, hey, can I try something a little different? Because it's important to me. And he trusted God and invested his life where God told him to, but he did it with kindness. You know, it's because he is kind to this man, he allows him to also be a witness to this man. It actually opens a door for him. He doesn't have to be ashamed to tell him the truth later because he's been kind along the way, even to those who didn't understand or respect his views. This man didn't agree with him, didn't see things the way he did, didn't value the things he valued, didn't have joy in the things he had joy in, and yet he got along well with him and was able to navigate that through his kindness. Friends, we all need, we all need to have friends who do not know God. You know, it's been said that, that oftentimes we no longer have or share our faith after the first two years we become a Christian because we no longer are engaged with non-Christian people. That, that we've so isolated ourselves and pulled ourselves out of other relationships that we've become so insulated in the church that we have no ability to engage those around us. And yet Jesus said, follow me and I will make you what? See, so you know the verse. So it's not knowledge we need, right? And yet so often we don't live with the idea or live with a heart that is a fisher. It's easy for us to disengage and stand outside relationships with those who don't see like we do rather than engage in relationship and living amongst them, amongst our friends and those who need to know. They need to know God and we're called to live amongst them. You know, even when you do not share your faith with some of your neighbors and coworkers and <clears throat> classmates, do you know you do share humanity with them? Even though they don't see everything according to the scriptures the way we see according to the scriptures, and we share a common humanity. That means you have an awful lot in common with every single person in our city. They watch movies and you watch movies. They have deadlines and you have deadlines. They have projects to do and you have projects to do. They have, they have kids and you have kids. Uh, they like music and you like music. They like sports and you like sports. They get sick and you get sick. They struggle with marriage and you know other people who struggle with marriage, right? Because uh, I don't want to own that one right now because she's right here. No, but we all, we all have common struggles that we engage in in life. They pay taxes and we pay taxes. And there's lots of common ground that you have with everyone around you to interact with them, to engage with them. And Jesus said that, that, that our city needs us to be salt and light. We need to be a light shining to them, pointing them to a God who loves them. And Jesus said that, they've, that there's many in our cities who have built their lives on sand and they're gonna, going to come a day when their life disintegrates in front of them. And it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but there will be a day when a storm comes and the things which they have built in their, their life upon begin to just dissipate and fall away and they're left with nothing. And what are they going to do when they're in that place? Friends, my hope is that they're gonna look to you because your, your life is built on something stronger. You are gonna be the one that because you've been kind to them and they see that in the midst of that storm, you are built on a foundation of solid rock, that you can speak truth to them out of love and out of grace for them. Friends, God has you here for a reason, like he had Daniel there for a reason. And it's so that you can engage them for their good. 
There's two things that I think cut a clear path for us in sharing the message of God's grace. One is kindness. And that's the most important one. The second one we see in the rest of this passage is excellence. Let's look at the remainder of this section. Look down at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, and the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke to them, among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and not understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The fifth distinctive that we see here is that Daniel was excellent. They let their fruit speak for them. They let, uh, by God's grace, it says they were 10 times better than those around them. Now, that's not a promise to you. Like, I can't promise you, like, walk in and God's gonna make you 10 times smarter than everyone around you necessarily. In Daniel's case, this is the way they experienced God's grace and his mercy. It says God's compassion, and, and God had compassion and favor upon them so that this was their unique scenario. But you notice they allowed their excellence to make a way for them. They didn't ask for preferential treatment or special treatment. They engaged in the, the education that the Babylonians offered them and they just excelled in it. They did well in the things that were in front of them. They mastered their learning and yet they preserved their identity and weren't mastered by anything. And so they engaged in the world with, 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 with confidence and then fully engaged, but they weren't completely swayed by the world. In their end, Daniel's friends navigated the knowledge and the culture and the language and the, uh, the food and everything else of the Babylonians so that they could re-enter into real conversations with Babylon on their, on their turf, on their ground, in their language. Does it sound like anyone you know? Jesus came from heaven to earth and, and, and engaged us in our language, on our turf, on our ground, so that we might know who God did. Daniel was representing God amongst them. In the end, he did it without becoming enslaved to it. Now, friends, the call isn't to become 10 times better than everyone around you. That's not really the goal of what, we, what we're calling you to, but the goal is to be fully engaged here, to contribute here, to honor God in the way in which we live. But that mean, part of what that means is if you're gonna be a cook, don't burn everything. If you're gonna be an accountant, be good at math. If you're gonna engage in business, produce something that's a benefit to the world around us. Have integrity in your dealings. Make sure that your, uh, that your creativity, if you're gonna be engaged in the arts, that your creativity is honest and sincere and that you've poured yourself into it. Your, your, day, your nine to five students, your, your classwork matters. If you're lazy on a football field and you try to share the gospel with your teammates, it's gonna have to overcome your laziness rather than your laziness building a bridge for you to be able to speak truth to them. So you wanna engage your world in a, in a healthy way, in a productive way. You wanna invest well in the world around you, partially because it's gonna open doors for you to witness about who God is. You know, the main way um, we witness to outsiders in our world is newsflash, is not by arguing with them. 
Like you, you throwing down hot sports opinions online is probably not gonna save everyone that's on your feed. But you know what? If you're kind, if you're present, if you're trustworthy, and you are there when their life begins to crumble, you, God may create an opportunity for you to speak truth to them out of love in a way that makes a real difference in their life. Friends, our city wants to see they wanna see if, if our faith works. They wanna see if Jesus makes a difference in our family life. They wanna see if Jesus makes a difference when we face hardship. They wanna see if Jesus can carry us through ups and downs of life. They wanna see if Jesus shapes the way in which we do business and the way in which we go to school and the way in which we live and the way in which we engage with our neighborhoods. They wanna watch and see, does God make a difference in our lives? And so the way in which we engage with them really matters. Our kindness and our excellence clear and cut a straight path for the message of God's grace for us. So let me end with this. We've seen five things from Daniel's life. You notice what we see in the very last verse. Verse 21 says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel was there. It can be translated, and Daniel continued Daniel was present. Daniel was engaged. Daniel was in the mix with the people of Babylon. He was there. And he, we've, we know from, from later that he was there for 70 full years. You know what allowed him to live faithfully for so long? It wasn't self-confidence. It was God-confidence. He was confident in his God. and He was confident that God had positioned him in that place in that time. And so he was present and he was there. He was engaged fully in his world. You know, you can have God confidence too. Friends, as believers, you know, that, you know the God who made the world. You know the God who called you to himself. You know the God that, that invited you in your brokenness to experience his forgiveness and his grace through the provision of shed blood. You know the God who stands by your side. You know the God who will never let you go. You know the God who says, I will be with you until I bring you all the way home and I will deliver you there. So just like Daniel, you can have confidence in God. Daniel needed to know all this because of the things that lay in front of him. We need to know it too. If we're gonna be a light in the darkness, if we're gonna be engaged with conviction and courage in our city. So you know, we can have even greater confidence because we have a cross and an empty tomb. That where Daniel saw the love of God and the grace of God as something that was his, but had not been fully demonstrated. And we get to look back and we get to see the shed blood of Jesus on a cross that just says, I love you. And there's nothing I wouldn't give for you. And we get to see the empty tomb and say, in the end, God is victorious over Nebuchadnezzar, over Babylon, over Persia, over Assyria, over every kingdom, over everything that would raise a hand or a fist to God. God wins in the end and we are going to rejoice in him and he will take us home just as he took Daniel home, but not just to a temporary place, but to a forever place where we will enjoy him forever. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we can have confidence, not in our excellence, but in yours. And because of your excellence, that we can trust you in all things. Father, would you make us light in the darkness? Would you give us strength to engage our world with conviction and courageous love. Father, would you make us 
individually, those who trust you with our lives, but also collectively as a church, would you give us a vision for loving our city for your sake and make us a distinctive people. Father, for Christ's name, amen.